you should really come to pumpkin killing. It's not even in my announcements to talk to you about, but I really like it when pumpkins go flying out of the cannon because it's cool. And we're going to have two cannons this year, actually. So be and and you can actually help fire it. So it's not like you have to watch other people fire off pumpkins. You can actually shoot one. Okay. This this is how first service went. By the way, everything I said, they just sat there like this. So. Well, and my message is kind of serious today, so let's see. Uh, first off, I think this will be much more important to you than it, than it was to first service, because uh, first service is like, we don't care. So uh, Element, uh, since, since we've kind of moved into our new space, we've been looking for ways to help better reach your, your kids. And uh, part of doing that is we have just recently, in the last week, uh, hired somebody to oversee middle school. And so this is Caitlin. This is Caitlin Virgin. You can clap if you want to. Her husband, Sal, that's the baby Roman. Uh, she actually has a degree in youth ministry, and she's, I mean, she's full-time mom. She's working a little bit of time for us and stuff like that to oversee middle school. And just if you've been wondering, we actually have extended an offer to somebody who's actually going to school, but they're coming to Element, and it'll be uh, in November, but a high school person as well. So, And I'll introduce that person to you when they actually get here. So there's that. So yeah, so if you see them around, say hi to them, give them a hug, say, hey, I'm so glad you're here, and they can feel really awkward. It'll be great. Let the let the hug linger. <laughs> uh, second thing I got to tell you is a women's Bible study starts this Wednesday, and if you are able to come at uh, nine thirty, is it nine thirty? Nine thirty uh, Wednesday morning. Uh, you can sign up in the back if you need child care. Sign up there so they know uh, we we need to have you sign up if you need child care, uh, so we know how many child care workers. Because there's actually laws that surround that. And we want to be legal. So if you are bringing kids, you want to come, please sign up for that, so we know how many child care workers we're going to need for that. And they're doing. It's so funny. They're doing this book called uh, Crazy Love by Francis Chan. And if you've been around Element the last couple of weeks, you got a lot of reading to do. Okay, because if you're uh, going to RG Redemption Groups, you got a book there. We're doing The Reason for God on Sunday mornings, and now they're doing Crazy Love. you got three books. You better get on it. Better get that audible and just start listening as you drive around with all those kids in the car, apparently, making all that noise so you can't really hear what's going on. I read the chapter. I don't know what it said, but uh, it was great. Didn't put my kids to sleep. I didn't like it. Uh, no? All right. Hey, welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. They're half sheets right now uh, because we are doing uh, this book called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Uh, and in our gospel communities, we have different notes that kind of go along with that. These will go more directly with the messages you get on a Sunday morning. Uh, the books go a lot deeper and a lot farther. And I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to. Uh, if you have not gotten a book, one per family... And you, if you lost it, buy your own, because uh, we've been out a ton of books so far. But if you don't have a Reason for God book, uh, we have one at the Welcome Center for you to take and, and to read. Are these on yet? It's really hot. Oh, yeah, okay. I say that before I start going and start sweating, you know, so here we go. Hey, uh, so anyway, if, if you are new, uh, you can uh, grab some sermon notes, you can grab a Bible seat back in front of you. Uh, if you need a book, grab one of those. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app, it's called YouVersion. Uh, click on More and then Events, and YouVersion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV. This is Psalm 56, verse 8, and it says, Record my misery, list my tears on your scroll, are they not in your record? 
Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in the midst of suffering and tragedy and things that we do not understand. Uh, that we would be those who who see who you are even in the midst of the things, as I said, that we don't understand and we would trust you. That we would come to a place, not where we're trying to muster up enough belief in our hearts, but a place where we simply trust you, that you are good for the things that you are doing and have done and continue to do, and that you can bring good out of anything that we go through. So teach us to be a people who lay all of ourselves before you. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so, uh, so we're doing this series through Tim Keller's book called The Reason for God. Uh, it is a book that really kind of centers on frequently asked questions that people have about the Christian faith and God. Uh, Keller, almost at the beginning of every chapter, will use real-life questions and conversations he has with people to kind of start it out. So you hear these questions in the real world and the real way of how they're being posed. And the whole point is that he want, wants believers to understand that the belief that we have in Jesus is a soundly rational belief. It can be held by intelligent people with integrity and compassion for the world around them. And so we believe this would be a good, to cover, good to cover with you so that in turn you would have the ability to understand some of these questions and also be able to speak into some of these places when people raise these questions because we believe the answers that God provides are real and true and lead to lasting life. Last week we talked about this question that people have to the exclusivity of Jesus and ultimately to Christianity's claim of Jesus being the only way to God, into relationship with God. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what we have done in our culture today is we say Jesus is the only way to heaven, and we make it about a place where we get all the things we ever wanted. When Jesus talks about it, it's the idea of eternal life, life with God, relationship with Him. That's why He says, that's why He says that you come into relationship with Father through me. It's about relationship and the life with God in us and, and with us. But that whole idea of exclusivity, it's a really big deal in our culture today. Today's topic is going to be probably an even bigger deal, and that is the question of suffering. Uh, Keller asserts that no matter how horrendous suffering is in the world, it cannot disprove God. It can be a really hard time for believers who want to talk about the goodness of God many times, but it cannot disprove God. Uh, Keller quotes philosopher J.L. Mackey who said, if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil because there is so much unjustifiable pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, but not the traditional God. And by traditional God, he means the one that I will get up and talk to you about with great authority uh, every Sunday. Okay, that's that's that God. So before we get neck deep, neck deep into this, I want to talk about something that you have to understand before you step into somebody's pain and misery. Uh, you cannot walk in just trying to give somebody the answer that there's something that they're going through. Many times when someone is in a place of hurt and pain, they're not really looking for answers in that moment. They are crying out. They're in anguish. And your thing that you can do is just step alongside them and sit and listen with them and love on them in the midst of it as you begin to go through that. In the Old Testament book of Job, uh, Job has these friends, he has all these tragedies that befall his life, and his friends kind of show up with him. And the first thing they do is brilliant. It is brilliant. They sit with him for seven days in silence. And that, and when you read the book of Job, you're like, this is amazing. And then after that, they open their mouths and they start espousing all this weird, stupid stuff. But the, and that was just dumb. But the first seven days was brilliant. 
And many times in the midst of suffering and pain, what we have to do is come alongside and sit with people. It's not that there aren't answers, and it's not that there's a place for answers at some point, but in the beginning of it, we just need to sit and listen and build relationship. And then after that, we can start talking about other things. Uh, and so we're going to talk about those other things today. Uh, the argument by Mackey is actually a false one. Because just because we can't see a reason for human suffering at times doesn't mean there isn't one. Uh, sometimes we have too much faith in ourselves and our own cognition and our own reasoning that we think all the answers must be plain to us whenever we ask. And if it isn't plain, then there must not be an answer. Keller calls that blind faith of the highest order. I have frequently told you guys that throughout our lives, many times the way that we learn and grow is through painful times when hard things come into our lives. And don't get me wrong, no one is ever going to be really grateful for tragedy, okay? okay? But insight and character and hope that is built in those times becomes invaluable. So this question of suffering has been around forever. Lots of people trying to figure this out all throughout history. You have like Pythagoras and Plato and Augustine and Anselm and Thomas Aquinas and Martin Luther and Martin Luther King. And if I had a list over here of those people who figured out why, it would be blank. Because nobody really has the answers. No one has a perfect answer for why people suffer, for why children get cancer, for why tsunamis or typhoons wipe out hundreds of thousands of homes and thousands of people's lives in an instant. And today, I'm not really going to have a perfect answer for you either. The problem with human suffering is it's not just an abstract concept that we get to debate and discuss and talk about. Pain is pain, and the problem with pain is pain hurts. Pain hurts. My pain hurts. My grief hurts. My loneliness hurts. And I'm sure your pain hurts too. Uh, some people may even come in here this morning, might even be you, and you're carrying this burden and this pain that weighs upon your shoulders. Maybe you have a loss in your life of some sort, or maybe you're angry. Maybe you're feeling like you just want to scream out, where is this good God that you speak of? I have not seen him. I think you're in the perfect place this morning because I think the Bible has some great and unique insights into the pain that we have in our lives and I think it has some profound things to say about suffering and evil and if you've never heard them, they might even surprise you. So what I want to do is I want to spend a little bit of time in talking about pain and suffering in our world and then I want to go and I want to look at what the person of Jesus brings in the midst of that and why it's so important. So start off, what does the Bible have to say about people who suffer? Uh, there is no one simple answer again to this question But if I had to boil why there is suffering in the world down to one sentence, this is what I'd say. Suffering, or at least the vast majority of suffering, is the natural result of human sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me explain. When God created the world, he created a function in this thing called shalom. And if you went and asked somebody today, what does shalom mean? They would say, oh, it means peace. It's it's God's peace. And and it does mean that. But it's so much more. It means everything's in the right place in the right time in the right way. Everything's okay with you and God. Right relationship between us and other people. It's between us and nature and us and God. It's God's favor and God's blessing. And this is how the earth and the world was supposed to function in this beautiful shalom of God. Moses says in Genesis that the reason why this world has fallen and messed up is not that the earth or God or creation is evil. He says that it is humanly wrought by us that we brought it about. That God gives humanity these vestiges of free will, but that is only beneficial so far as it is exercised with God's divine will. And any abuse of the power that God gives his people makes disaster inescapable. We were meant to live in the peace of God, not evil and self-sufficiency. And so when God creates the world, he places mankind in this world to steward it as his priests, as his image bearers in the world, so we would be him to this world. We would, And we could do this in the way of shalom. Essentially what you kind of read in the scriptures is that God kind of gives the deed to the earth to mankind. 
And you get to steward it. And so what does mankind do with that deed? Is we start living in evil and self-sufficiency. We make it all about ourselves and it's all about me. We break relationship with God and run our own way thinking we know how to do it all better than he does. This is what happens in our world when God's shalom is broken. When mankind first sinned and broke relationship with God, it did not merely result in this inner guilt and this inner shame. It begins this comprehensive and catastrophic collapse of this thing called shalom, which means in the end, every part of God's creation is now infected by this. It's all corrupted. From that first fractured marriage all the way to those first two kids in the Bible with violence against one another, to vengeance between entire families, to the eventual breakdown of human society itself. We're even told in Romans 8:19, for the creation waits with eager with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Creation itself is longing for God to restore the peace that he has promised. And so sin for us becomes relational things like impatience and racism and why we enjoy gossiping and talking about other people, but it's also large scale and why there's so many complicated, global, unsolvable problems. It's why millions of people starve while other people can live in plenty. It's why nations fight wars over things like oil rights and water. It's why people are forced into slavery so other people can have cheaper clothing. And do you know that sin and this breakdown of shalom is even in this room today? It's in this thing called the church. And, and this is why churches don't always look like people think they should look. Oh, it's a church. Everybody should be loving and perfect and it should be wonderful. Well, it doesn't look that way. You know why? Because we go here, okay? Because we're all a part of it and we're all messed up and we have all contributed to the breakdown of God's peace. Everything can be traced to this breakdown of shalom. And when we trust ourselves more than we trust our God, out of that, suffering becomes the natural outplay in our world. And, and just because I say that suffering is a consequence for sin, it does not mean, and I am not saying, that all suffering is God's punishment for sins. It does not mean that if you go through some horrible thing in your life that God is somehow mad at you. Scott Scruggs uh, gives us an example of how he's growing up. His parents would say, if you eat too much candy, you're going to get some cavities. And that's his parents' way of saying there's going to be pain because of your choices. But kids can't resist candy, so he keeps eating candy, and eventually he did get cavities. And his parents say, was it worth it? What do you say? Yes, it was totally worth it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bad analogy, but... (laughs) But the point is that God, just like those parents, give us all, He gives us some warnings in our lives. If you go down your own way, if you stop trusting me, you will surely die. It's not a matter of punishment. It's what happens when we break relationship with God. It's a consequence of our actions. God is our source of life. God brings hope and joy. And when we run away from Him, we run away from those things, and we try and manufacture them in our own lives, and it never works. It all falls apart. Scott Scruggs said this. He said, the real punishment for sin is that we are left to live in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Genesis three sixteen to 19, God says to man, after they fall headlong into sin and break the peace of God, he says, in pain and toil and frustration, you will live and work and raise your families. And life outside of God's peace is hard. We all know this because that's where we typically live. And from a Christian perspective, pain is not really the punishment for sin per se. As I said, it's going to be the consequence of it. And that's personal. Right? It comes really personal in our lives. But what about things like tsunamis and earthquakes and things like that? Keller talks about these in the book, chapter 2 this week. Read chapter 2. That's, that's your homework. Uh, but most good Bible scholars believe that sin was so far-reaching in its ill effects that it even corrupted the genetic makeup of the world that was under man's stewardship. C.S. Lewis once said, What exactly happened when humanity fell, we do not know. 
the truth is, no one can say for sure why God allows things like cancer to exist or why he created an earth that could even be prone to earthquakes and, and tsunamis. But here's what I can tell you. I do not believe that those things are directly related to God's punishment for sin, as some other people suggest. What I mean by that is, yes, God stands in judgment against our sin. And there are some examples of God allowing some catastrophes to take place to bring about judgment. But the end, when you see that in the scriptures, it was always, always, always about some greater salvation. It was always about a greater salvation. Noah's flood is about a greater salvation. The plagues in Egypt are about a greater salvation and this bringing out this enslaved people into freedom. Uh, the famine in Egypt is about a greater salvation. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Jesus actually kind of talks about this. In Luke 13, there are two deadly events that took place that everyone was talking about at the time. The first one is a group of Galileans had been killed by one of the Roman governors. And the second one is that a tower had fallen, killing a number of innocent people. Okay, so this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That means he killed them. Uh, and he's answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think that they were worse people, and because they are worse people, this thing happened to them? Verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, because Jesus goes to the deeper issue. It's about our sin and what it does in our lives. Verse 4, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think those people were worse than everybody else? Verse 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus says, do disasters like this happen because some people are more sinful than others? And the answer is no. No. I don't know how much clearer he can be. But he then tells us to all repent. Repent is not, you know, stop doing that. It includes that. But repent is returning to who God calls us to be. In a Jewish mindset, repent is this word called teshuva. It's this return to who God calls you to be. Come back and live in the shalom, into the peace of God that he is providing for you. And so what we see is that sometimes certain things happen to us because we run away from God's peace. It's, he doesn't say this like, repent or God's going to send a tornado to your house. That's not what he's saying. Jesus understands the nature of sin, that we, have all, that we are all the same, that we've all run away from God. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The NIV says, If you kept a record of sins, who could stand? The point is that none of us are innocent. None of us. And we all make decisions that hurt other people around us. We all in some way will benefit from a system that is unjust and oppressive. We are not just victims of suffering. We are also perpetrators of it. And the truth is that if God sees all of these different sins and how they one sin leads to another sin, to another sin, to another sin, this complicated weave of pain and suffering in their world, there is no place for anybody to stand and cry foul which is why Jesus comes to give his life and put an end to the cycle of pain and of sin that we are all caught up in and bring us back into relationship with God again to begin to restore God's shalom to this earth. Honestly, and Keller points this out in the book, there is really no better answer to suffering than the Christian answer. As C.S. Lewis said that all of our modern objections to God are all based upon notions of, of what is fair and justice and what's right, based upon our own notions of what fair and, and right is. We believe that no good person, whatever we define good as, should ever suffer any hardship. But think about this. If evolutionary mechanics are all that there is, if natural selection is all that there is, then what happens here is everything in this world depends upon death and violence. 
everything. The strong are supposed to lord and have power over the weak. That's just natural. It's called survival of the fittest. And if there is no God, it isn't wrong or unjust or unfair. It's just how it is. We are a people who cry out against injustice and pain because we know in reality there is something more. To have a problem with suffering is actually a bigger problem for atheists than it is for believers because atheism doesn't have a better answer. In a world without God, suffering is meaningless and it's just what it is. And it's totally random, which means for every child who dies of hunger, which is six million a year right now, by the way, and we should be doing something about it. And good news is we actually are. That number is decreasing right now. But six million, there's going to be no justice and no second chances and no making it right. In the end, if there is no God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you take uh, George Lucas and Star Wars theology, like the forces and the rockers and the trees and you, hmm, like that thing, we, we call this pantheism. And that's an even worse answer because that just means that God is actually part of the evil actions in the world. He's complicit in them. Buddhism, the central tenet of Buddhism is that all life is pain. That's what it is. And if you want to get off the wheel of reincarnation, this wheel called samsara, then you have to then reach the seventh foothold, but that's only possible if you're part of the priestly class and you're male. Yeah, right? Classism right there. And other belief systems try to deny the existence of evil altogether, and they say, it's just a lesser form of enlightenment. Have you watched the news? I don't see that as a lesser form of enlightenment. What I'm saying is that the prevalence of suffering in our world, it may lead us to question what God is doing. But the fact that we intrinsically know that something is wrong, that we get angry and say, that can't be right, that is some of the best evidence that there is a God who created the world where children were meant to thrive, where no one goes hungry, and cities and nations were meant to cooperate with one another and live in peace. Do you understand when, when people suffer and you see pain in the world, God wants you to be mad about it? God wants you to get angry about it. He wants us to be mad enough to do something about it. And then people say, well, shouldn't God just fix this? Well, this is the interesting thing. God has. God has. Who are we meant to be in the world? His image bearers. His stewards to the world. And if we see something that angers us, who is supposed to do something about it? Us. Right. Because we are made in his image, and the world is supposed to know who he is because of the image of him that we display. Do you see what God has done? And the only way that's ever going to happen is when we actually begin to live in the shalom and the peace of God that he brought. This is one of the reasons why Element does tons of things in the world, from helping get girls out of prostitution to supporting CareNet to getting wheelchairs into places in the world so people can be mobile again, to getting clean water to different places. The writers in the scriptures didn't spend their time trying to explain evil. They, they got angry about it, and they grieved over it. When the early church was founded, this is what you read, Acts 244 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. If you read throughout the scriptures, you will see one thing God didn't want from his people, and that was their silence. That is the one thing he didn't want, because this will lead to all these songs and poems being written about in the Old Testament, of people crying out to God in their pain, not running from God in their pain, but crying out to him in the midst of it. These are called songs of lament. The book of Psalms, two-thirds of the book of Psalms are songs of lament. In the Psalms, people speak passionately about their anger. God is accused of abandonment and falling asleep on the job and, and even murder. The Psalms don't just give you permission to pray out your anguish. Sometimes they give you the words to even do. Do it. 
No one in the ancient world spoke to gods like Israel spoke to their god. Ellen Davis writes this, she says, In no other culture do people pray to the high god in language that was so strong, so forthright, even so rude. We haven't forgotten you, why have you forgotten us? And the Israelites learned to pray out their anger and their anguish, not out of disrespect, but because they believed that God actually heard them. And that God entered in. And God cared about where they were. Again, Psalm 56, verse 8, the verse I started with, this is out of the ESV. You have kept count of my tossings, that's the word for miseries, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? In that day, people would take tears and they would collect them in bottles and put stoppers on them and keep them to remind you of the pain that you went through. That these tears were part of that moment so that you would not forget. And the psalm writer says that God has been collecting our tears. And that God does not forget. He has not forgotten a single prayer you've prayed. He has not forgotten a single tear that you've shed. The prayer about your marriage or that loved one in your life who's going in the direction you want them to come back. That pain of somebody you've lost. That somebody you're trying to reach that you can't help no matter how hard you try. That ache over a shattered dream or a shattered life. God has heard you. Which leads to the best news of why Christianity speaks into suffering unlike any other. And that is, God has done something about it. He has. Which brings us to the person of Jesus. And when people say these words about God noticing our pain, and that God steps into our pain, a lot of times people say, well, that doesn't get off the hook, him off the hook just for noticing. Well, Keller quotes Peter Kreeft, uh, who says that the Christian God came to earth in Jesus to deliberately put himself on the hook for human suffering. In Jesus, God experiences the greatest depth of pain that any human has ever suffered. This is what Kreeft writes. He says, Though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it provides deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. The life of Jesus shows us, unlike any other God, our God suffers with us. God suffers with us. The heart of Christianity is not a God who goes about trying to explain all this suffering. It's a God who shares in it and brings us back into his peace again. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God constantly repeats that refrain throughout the scriptures. I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. We sin, we run, we fail, we fall, we, we push him away. The whole world is tainted by our human sin, which results in suffering. But God promises to bring it all to his glory and our good. That's his promise. Edward Shalito was an English minister who survived the atrocities of World War I. He sees the gruesome face of death and suffering really like few ever have. But it didn't make Jesus less real to him. It actually made Jesus more real because he understood there in the midst of that pain and in that misery that God is the God who suffers with us. He writes this poem. It's called Jesus of the Scars. And this is what it says. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Maybe for you today, there is a wound or a deep pain that is inside your heart. You don't know what to do with. The life of Jesus shows that our God will use all of our suffering for good. For good. For his glory and our good. God will always use suffering for good. And I know sometimes we look around and we say, but I don't see any good coming out of this. I don't see the right thing for this. I don't see this yet. Well, I think the opportunity where there is yet. God is still doing something. God is always at work. God is our future and our hope. And that's what we trust in, what he is doing. And so in in John 9, this is one of the ways that Jesus shows whatever God does, he, he brings good about it. So Jesus is walking with his disciples. They come across a man blind from birth. 
Okay? And this is what they say, John 9, verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's a great question, right? Oh, you're blind, what'd you do? Right? But that's how people saw things, how we see things today as well. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not this man, it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus kind of said it's not about the why, it's really about the what. He doesn't say what other people say. Oh, suffering in and of itself is good. He doesn't say that. He says that God will bring good out of this suffering, that God will use the worst pain and the worst heartache that anybody's ever gone through to bring glory to himself and good to his people. This is what Jesus says about God. The truth, I love Mike Harmon. Mike Harmon is one of our elders. He's the pastor of our Redemption Group ministry, and his life is filled with heartache and pain from childhood to adulthood. Uh, This could have broken him, and if you ever ask to get his story, he will tell you how it did break him and how it does continue to break him. But today, he takes that pain and that brokenness, and he uses it to help other people understand the redemption that God brings, that God is still good, that God is still working. He talks about how God met him in his loneliness, and his heartbreak, and his sadness, to see the redemptive hand of Jesus. God does not relish in our pain and in our suffering, but he promises to always use it for his good. And there is no clearer picture of this than the cross, a moment when God turns the ultimate evil and injustice on its head. All of our sin was turned into a moment of grace and forgiveness at the moment of the cross. On the cross, Jesus says, John 19, 30, he says these words, It is finished. It means paid in full. The days for sin and suffering and heartbreak and heartache are numbered. Because of the cross, hope gets to be restored to God's people. God returns shalom, his peace to our souls. We actually can live in God's peace. And we get the privilege of being the people that God once called Adam to be. Those who get to live out in this world in a way that reflects who he is. We get to be his image bearers to this world. We get to look for ways to end suffering as God's hands and feet to the world. We step into people's pain because God stepped into ours. We get to love because God first loved us. Now, earlier when I told you that story from Scott Scruggs about growing up, he tells this other story about some friends of his who actually lost their eight-year-old son to cancer. And I, this is not to give you an answer for why certain things happen, and I don't, because I don't have those, but I think if we understand Jesus as our comforter and redeemer of our future hope and our present reality of who he is, I think it makes things a little bit different in how we experience suffering and pain. So these parents, they wrote this letter after their son's death, and I wanted to read part of it to you. Okay, this is, this is what they said. Five months ago, Matt, our eight-year-old son, died. How then can we stand here and affirm that God is good? This may seem strange, but we have never experienced God so intimately and so powerfully as when we are in the midst of our suffering. Don't get me wrong. Matt's cancer and his death brought us profound pain. I turned to scripture to find comfort, but as hard as I looked, I couldn't find any verse that promised that God would take our sickness, take away sickness and death. What I did find, however, were many promises of how he would be with us and provide for us. Well, God kept that promise. Though our pain did not go away, the burden was eased by an abundance of blessings. And God worked within Matt to help him face death without fear and live out his life with complete joy. Those final hours were some of the holiest moments we've ever experienced. There was joy amidst our tears. We could all feel God's presence, and that room felt like hallowed ground. Our lives will never be the same, but out of the depths of our misery, God parted the heavens and reached down. He did not take death away, but he took away its sting. And in that place, he made us feel his faithful and abundant love, and for that we rejoice. Can you imagine having an eight-year-old son die and writing the word rejoice? I mean, it's crazy, right? 
It's crazy. How can that be? It's not because they had this really easy answer for everything that they went through. It's because that God came down and shared their grief with them. And that there is a hope that he provides. That God has been bringing good out of painful tragedies since the first day we ran away from him. And this is, and this is the beauty of the gospel. That God is bringing good to all the pain and the misery that we have brought. Last week when we talked about exclusivity, right? And, and that, that we are the ones who keep trying to exclude God from our lives. And then what does that bring? That brings pain and suffering. God steps into that to bring us back in again to restore his peace to our lives. And that just doesn't give us a future hope. It gives us a present hope as well. That no matter what we go through, no matter what is going on, God can always use it for good. And he does use it for good. I mean, think about something like communion, right? This is the place where Jesus comes. He is born in human flesh and we crucify him. This did not look like good news to his followers until Jesus rose from the grave. And they're like, oh, I get it. And they really didn't get it. It took them a while to get it. But, you know, I mean, we half the time don't even still get all of it. And yet, this moment of tragedy was the greatest triumph because God can return peace and harmony to our souls and lives again. This is why you take a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you break it. It's to remind us that Jesus' body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us that Jesus' blood was shed for us. That he stepped into the tragedy that we had brought about to bring us back into relationship with God again. This is what we remember at communion, what God did to rescue us to step into our pain and to bring us back into relationship with him again. So I'm going to have the band come up, the two of them. <laughs> and as they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There's going to be some uh, deacons in the back. And if you need prayer today, maybe you're in a place where you come in and you've got this heavy burden laying upon your shoulders. And you just want someone to sit and listen or pray with you, kind of walk with you through some of that stuff. Guys, they, they would love to do that with you. Uh, what we have to understand is that our God is good. He has placed us as a people to come alongside and love one another, to honor him and how we, and how we do that by being able to step into each other's pains. And, and we are not a people who always just have to have all of the answers. You don't have to have all the answers. What we need to know is that Jesus came to rescue and to save and restore us. And we cannot point to, this is why this particular thing happened to you. But what we can point to is that God stepped into our misery, into the places where we are, to bring us back into relationship with Him, and He, in the end, can turn all things to His good. He can. Even when we don't see it or don't understand. We're, uh, one person used to liken it to uh, threads in a tapestry, that our lives are, if you look on the backside of a tapestry, it's all snags and snarls where all these different threads are going all these different ways, and that's our life. And then God is on the top side taking all these different things and weaving, and weaving this tapestry into this beautiful thing where you see the front side and it's just gorgeous. God is taking all the pain of our lives and weaving it together into something that brings Him glory and ultimately leads to His people's joy. And so I would encourage you today, if you are going through something, to talk to other people about it, to begin to walk through with one another. And realize you don't always have to have the answers. But we can be a people who point solely and constantly to the person of Jesus and his rescue of us. Uh, there are offering boxes next to every door we give because uh, giving back to God is important to us. Uh, God gave so much to us, and we don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he's done. Grab some food outside, grab some sermon notes, maybe meet with people this week and start talking about some of those painful tragedies you've been through.
Begin to, to walk through those and, and maybe, you know, you start praying. You may not see the good right now, so start praying. God, show me the good that's going to come from this thing. Help me to see it when you actually do what you're going to do in the fullness of this. Please just give me a glimpse of that one day in my life so I can see it too. Because, guys, I'll tell you, sometimes things, things happen to me. Sometimes I'm like, how can anything good happen out of this? And then God does something amazing. And I'm just so blessed to be able to see that what he did out of it. And there's other things in my life that are like that is tragedies, and I still haven't seen the culmination of what God is doing. And I'm not saying that God hasn't already done something. I just haven't seen it yet, right? But it's that God is always good, always taking our tragedies and moving them back into the place where he brings good out of them because he is good. So let's be a people who live in the solidity of a faith in a God who rescues and saves and redeems everything. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would remind us that yes, there's sometimes in our lives when we do not see the reason for a whole lot of things. That does not mean there isn't one. And it does not mean that we can't trust you in the midst of not having an answer. And so, Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a people who get our eyes off of the tragedy and the pain that is directly in front of us. And you have us be able to put our eyes upon you. That we have a promised future, but we also have a promised reality of today as well. That you step into these places and you walk with us through these things. That you are good and holy and true. And that we would be a people who find great confidence and trust in who you are. That we would surrender ourselves to our great Redeemer who has come to rescue us from all the ways that we are broken peace with you. And that we would see all the ways that you do restore that peace. And the ways that you call us to then offer that peace to others around us. And have us not be a people who feel like we have to have all the answers, but ask that you teach us to be a people who have great trust in who you are so that we will live out the good news of the gospel by all that we do. Thank you for saving, redeeming, rescuing us, restoring shalom. And as many times we run away, you still chase us down and love us. And though... We'll probably never understand that this side of eternity, how many times you come after us. Have us still stand in great humbleness because of your goodness. We ask all these things in your son's good name. Amen.